come with me to a steamy place full of plants. Yes, we're talking terrariums this week in On The Ledge. I am your hard-working host, Jane Perrone, and this is the show that brings you the houseplant info you need. And this week, Jacob James from Grow Tropicals joins me to talk about starting terrariums, the best plants, lighting, substrates and more. And I answer a question about toxic aroids. I don't mean the high prices for rare plants, although that is quite toxic. I mean the chemicals inside your favourite aroids that might make you or your pets poorly if you decide to eat them. The big plant news around here this week is that my daughter has finally started to show an interest in plants. Result, she's a teenager and she's just started asking me if she can have plants for her room. So far, she's got a succulent and a cactus and she's asking for more. She has given them names, which she says is helping her remember to water them. So, yes, my influence is beginning to have an effect. (laughs) Sorry, got a bit over the top there. Anyway, we're talking about terrariums today. I can't help when I think of talking terrariums of that banana rama song, which... um, was actually called Talking Italian, but many of you may be too young to remember that. Thanks for all your love regarding the snake plant episode. And Dr. Colin Walker, what a star, uh, has packaged up some of the Sansevieria species he was talking about that are not in my collection and is sending me a load of plants. Colin, you are a hero. Thank you so much for that. I've also been doing some propagating and getting ready to give away more plants because that is what gives me a big kick. I love to give away plants. I recently did a swap with somebody and they were worried that the plant that they were sending me as a cutting was not as valuable as the plant that I was giving them. And I said, well, it's a bit of an arbitrary figure, really. You know what the market rate for my Hoya cutting is versus the rate for your Serapedia cutting It's all kind of immaterial for me because I've got something you want and you've got something I want. So that's all that matters. Um, That's my philosophy and I'm going to stick by it. All right. Enough preaching to the converted. It's time for today's interview with Jacob James covering all things under glass. I'm Jacob James. I'm the well, one of the founders of uh, Grow Tropicals. We're a specialist nursery that specialises in rare tropical houseplants and also plants for the terrarium hobby as well. I'm very glad to have you here talking about terrariums, Jacob, because it's one of those issues that I tackled right back at the beginning of the show. But I haven't really come back to in any depth. So this should be a real treat. Jacob, could you just start off by telling me whether you were like me and this was something that started as a child, a passion for terrariums, or is it something that's developed later in life? I think I actually come into terrariums maybe slightly differently even than uh, the other the other guys that I work with here. The reason I got into terrarium and terrarium plants is uh, really it came about I was collecting kind of bigger, rare tropical plants, aroids and and these kind of things. And I actually kind of hit a limit of how many plants I I could fit in my house. Uh, So then I started to look for for smaller and smaller species. 
I started to look at kind of miniature philodendrons, uh, Mark Gravia, this kind of thing. And that actually led me down a, a rabbit hole to meeting a whole kind of new community of people who mostly came in from the kind of reptile hobby or the dart frog uh, collecting hobby. And it kind of met in the middle with this real fascination for, for kind of particularly miniature, rare, and most often neotropical uh, terrarium plants. I get rather upset, Jacob, by looking online at some of the terrarium pictures and advice out there, because a lot of it is really quite, quite poor. Um, so I'm just wondering if you can start off by giving us an overall outline for anyone starting out with terrariums about what you need and how to get started. I think the obvious bad advice and, and the one that you see a lot is people putting things like cactus and uh, cacti and succulent into, into terrariums. And really, that's probably the, the opposite to, to the ideal uh, environment for those plants. So the ideal plants really for, for terraria are, um, you know, your small species that are found in, in kind of the understory of a rainforest or the small kind of climbing, shingling plants that you'll find at the base of, you know, large trees in the rainforest. And those are really the ones that, that we're interested in and in cultivating for, for terrariums because they're often, uh, tolerant of low light. They, they need a high humidity. Um, coming from, uh, the tropics, they're often require reasonable temperature. And what you find is inside a terrarium, the, the temperature tends to be at least as a minimum a couple of degrees above the, the kind of ambient temperature in your house. So even if you're not heating them and putting too much temperate, uh, too much light on them, what you'll find is the, the temperature tends to hang around, say, 20 degrees. And then as soon as you start putting lights and things, that, that can go higher. So you really want plants that are tolerant of warm temperatures, tolerant of uh, high humidity, and also don't need... Uh, lots and lots of light because I think what what we often forget when growing plants in general indoors is that what feels like a lot of light through a grow light or an aquarium light or whatever you, you're choosing to to light the terrarium with it's actually very minuscule compared to say bright outdoor full sun so yeah it's really these understory plants and I think the the key components to to actually growing in terrarium is you want a really nice, fast-draining uh, substrate. So a lot of people originally, uh, in, probably in the last kind of 10 years, particularly coming through innovations in, in kind of the reptile and dart frog hobbies, uh, developed substrates uh, such as one that's called ABG, which is kind of a mixture of, your, of like peat, bark, tree fern, fiber, all of these kind of things. But I think what a lot of people have, have realized over the last... Uh, probably more like the last five years is that often the conditions you find on the the understory of the rainforest is actually the the soil and the substrates that plants are growing in is incredibly nutrient poor actually because what happens is it's always wet uh, it's raining it's raining a lot and what that does is that causes the the nutrients to leach out the soil really fast so there's been a kind of move more towards inorganic substrates in, in the last few years. So a lot of people are using things like clay, akadama, pumice, lava rock, all these things that really uh, just help to, to give the roots structure, but also hold in a little bit of nutrient, but also allow the water to, to drain out really fast. 
in a kind of sealed terrarium environment, a lot of people will have a, a basic drainage layer at the bottom. And this just gives the, the excess moisture somewhere to run off to. So it's not always sitting in the, in the substrate because even though a lot of these plants are used to, to growing in very wet environments, they, they don't want to be boggy around the roots. Um, because that just leads to, to root rot. So, um, yeah, it's really about having fast draining substrate, high humidity, uh, lots of warmth and, uh, a reasonable amount of light, but you don't need tons and tons of light. Just going back to the cacti and succulents in glass boxes thing, I'm, I know I'm a bit obsessed with this topic, but is there a reason why this is so popular, even though it's, it's really not a great practice? Is it because cacti are just more available than the plants that actually work in a terrarium or, or is there something else going on? No, I, I can't either. I, I think it's probably a little bit of everything. I think um, one of the benefits of, of things like succulents and cacti is they're quite slow growing. And I guess this is one point that I didn't touch on in, in the last answer was we also often look for plants that don't grow too fast because I think what you find is if you put a, a fast growing plant in within two, three, four months, it's going to fill your terrarium. And a lot of people go to terrariums because they're relatively, you know, minimal, uh, minimal maintenance and care. And the last thing you want to be doing is, is chopping, chopping away plants like every week just to, to keep it free. So, I think some of it is to do with slow growing. And I think the other is probably somebody who was not very knowledgeable at some point made one with a cactus or a succulent, posted it on something like Pinterest. And, you know, this kind of like received wisdom just gets passed down, whether it's correct or not. Um, and then, you know, you've got retailers. Um, recently, I think Primark did one with, with cacti and, um, or succulent in it. Uh, so I think probably the cost is, is an element as well. Slow growing miniature plants are still hard to source. They're still quite expensive, relatively speaking. So, um, yeah, I, I imagine it's a little bit of all of those elements coming together. I'm showing my age here, but when I was a kid, I used to make terrariums out of those big sweet jars. You know, you'd go to the corner shop and buy a quarter of cola cubes. And uh, if you asked nicely, you might be able to take uh, a jar or two home. They were great because they had really wide necks. Obviously, times have moved on and there are many other things to make terrariums out of. What are the characteristics of a good vessel to use as a terrarium? I think there's there's kind of two ways of, of approaching um, terrariums. There's the kind of uh, the larger setup where people are using the same terrariums as you would keep reptiles or dart frogs in. Uh, and this really, these kind of uh, enclosures really allow you to create something a little bit bigger, uh, a little bit more complex. You know, you can hook them up to, to misting systems and light systems and all this. But equally, there's also the, the kind of school of terrariums where it's, as you say, it's, you know, building them in uh, small vases, in um, fish bowls, in bottles. Um, I think... There's, there's some really easy uh, ways to get started with terrariums that doesn't require huge investment in your kind of uh, vessel. And uh, I, I've personally made them in uh, small vases. You know, if you go to, uh, to places like HomeSense and, and these kind of shops that, that do a little bit of everything for, for homeware, you can often find 
nice kind of fishbowl style vases. You can find kind of square vases. And then very cheaply, you can get small pieces of like acrylic cut, um, cut to size to, to sit on top as, as a lid. And that can be a really, you know, low cost way of, of getting into, into Terraria. Um, I think more and more we're now seeing also garden centers and kind of traditional garden retailers getting into, to the terrarium idea as well. So I know a lot of garden centers I've been to recently have had kind of terrarium areas, um, with, with vessels and, and whatnot. And I, I, I think as, as the hobby grows and interest in it grows, I think we'll start to see that, you know, vessels and terraria available in lots of places. Some listeners might not be familiar with that substance, Akadama. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that and what it's used for? But my understanding is it's basically a clay-based substrate. Originally, it was developed in Japan for for the bonsai industry, actually. So my understanding is the difference between like Akadama and some of the other clay substrates is actually Akadama is, is mined. And depending on how deep they they take it from the ground it gives different grades so you can get the more expensive stuff is harder so it doesn't break down as fast and then you can get the cheaper one which is which is slightly softer um but the good thing with clay based substrates is they have um sounds a bit sciencey they have what's called a high cation exchange capacity which basically in layman's terms means that it can hold a lot of nutrients and slowly release them so the more you use it, the more it can basically become charged with, with nutrient without kind of burning the roots or anything. So even though it's an inorganic substrate, over time, it, it basically, uh, each one becomes little sponges. They also hold quite a lot of moisture, but also are fast draining. So it has a nice kind of like oxygen to uh, soil or substrate uh, ratio. So you get a lot of oxygen, uh, a lot of air to the roots while still uh, staying moist. And what that does is that also helps to prevent rot when it's constantly damp. A lot of people really use Akadama a lot in uh, for sensitive begonia, small, really expensive terrarium uh, begonias, uh, and also I use it a lot for, I, I personally have a, an interest in a group of plants that are known as rheophytes. So they're plants that grow along the banks of rivers in, in the rainforest and in kind of in the monsoon season, often grow uh, submerged underwater. Then the dry season are grow immersed. So by immersed, it means the, the roots are kind of underwater or are very wet but the foliage is, is above water. And so I often use mixture of kind of like Akadama, charcoal, maybe a bit of pumice, um, because it allows it to stay wet, but without causing kind of rot problems. And for that reason, it makes a perfect substrate for terraria as well, because it allows it to, to be wet regularly, but without kind of breaking down, without becoming, uh, creating anaerobic conditions, which kind of rot the roots of the plants. If you're just starting out and you maybe don't have access to loads of different substrates, is it mainly just a case of having a drainage layer and a potting mix maybe divided by some kind of mesh? Is that the basic stuff that you need? Yeah, I think, um, to be honest, the the conditions for the, the beauty of terrarium, should I say, is that the high humidity and warmth is kind of ideal for, for growing conditions for most plants. So 
even the kind of rarer plants will thrive in the same way that your kind of cheaper, more accessible plants will. Um, in terms of substrates, so probably the cheapest and easiest way to get started is to use something like uh, grit or uh, if you can buy small liquor, the small clay, clay granules that you can get from most garden centers as your drainage layer. Then either something like weed stuff fabric or uh, the material that they use for basically like sun blinds on cars. Uh, basically, it's a really fine mesh. And what that will do is that will help keep your substrate layer out of your drainage layer. And then the drainage, uh, the substrate layer can, can really be anything that doesn't stay too wet for too long. So I tend to stay away from your traditional houseplant compost because it tends to hold probably a little bit too much moisture. But I think you, what you can do is you can create a mix very easily with, say, bark, with a bit of perlite to, to help um, drainage. Uh, if you can find it, pumice, some garden centers have it, some don't. Um, a little bit of sphagnum moss can, can on the top of the substrate layer can help to kind of keep a bit of moisture in and humidity up. But I think really, as long as it's staying moist but not too boggy, the, uh, the actual substrate can be pretty much anything that, that's fast draining. Um, a lot of the times you can, in garden centers, you can find like bonsai soils or you can find uh, soils that are designed for cacti or for um, orchids. And these all tend to be fast draining and any of those will, will be pretty good. And if it's a simple kind of bottle style terrarium, you can control how, how moist that is simply by how much you spray water into it. So the trick really is to keep the humidity in the in the vessel high and the substrate not soaking wet. So even just spraying, you know, the, the glass every now and then can, can keep the humidity up without saturating the, the substrate layer. If someone's got, say, a small fish tank and they want to start off planting it up without resorting to any very rare and hard to get plants what kind of things are we talking about small ferns mosses where do we start in terms of affordable plants to get started with um one of the best places to look is um stores that sell aquarium plants a lot of aquarium plants are as i said before rheophytes what that means is they don't naturally always grow underwater but when they grow immersed above water, they, they need high humidity. So they're really good for terrariums. So things like Bucephalandra, Cryptocorini, all of these plants are slow growing, really amazing foliage. And you can pick them up kind of five to six pounds each. And they're pretty much perfect for, uh, for these kind of vessels. I think where a lot of people often go wrong with terrariums is they see small versions of big plants at, at garden centers or in houseplant shops and think it's a small plant and suddenly it's you know it's growing at the top so you really need the the species that stay smaller um there, there's also some plants which you can get hold of relatively easy now uh, species like margravia which are kind of shingling climbing plants um and margravia uh, uh, and umbellata, those two are 
aff- relatively affordable, relatively accessible, but you'd probably need to go to a kind of terrarium specialist for, for those kind of plants. Um, and then also plants like bromeliads. There's quite a lot of um, cheap bromeliads available now, um, often in uh, stores designed for, for terraria, for actually for reptile keeping and dart frog keeping often stock the, the smaller species of bromeliads because dart frogs actually, um, they, they spawn inside the bromeliads. So they, they used a lot in, in those kind of, uh, terraria. And then even, uh, things like air plants work really well in, uh, in terrarium as long as you, uh, mount them to say a piece of wood. So they're not sat in the substrate. They kind of thrive in that high humidity environment. I do love those shingling vines. They just look so awesome. But I guess is the key trying to mix it up in terms of different colours, shapes, forms and so on when you're choosing plants? Yeah, I think there's, again, there's a couple of schools and how people tend to do this. My, my own personal taste is I often find pictures of uh like in situ pictures of rainforest and try and kind of recreate a slice of rainforest. So my taste tends to be quite naturalistic in, in how I want it. So I don't tend to use super colorful plants. I maybe have one or two with lots of color and the rest is kind of green in texture. Um, some people like really colorful plants and will fill it with, you know, the brightest uh, bromeliads and uh, fern species. So I think it really depends where, where you want to go um, with, with how you want it to look. Yeah, I do love those brightly coloured bromeliads. They are just so cool. And another thing that some people spend an awful lot of time and money on is grow lights. But are they an absolute essential or can you get away without using them? Does it depend on what kind of setup you've got and what plants you're using? I wouldn't say lighting is essential depending on your conditions. I think if you've got a spot that is is close to a window where you're growing normal houseplants that doesn't get direct sunlight, that will be probably enough light to to get started. But I think you'll you'll really see an improvement from having a light on the on the terrarium. Now it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a, a really expensive grow light or um, a super expensive aquarium light or, or one specifically for terrariums. It can be anything from, from an IKEA bulb. They, at one point, and I think they still do them, they were actually doing grow lights for, you know, around 10 pounds that, that fit into normal light fixtures. And I think that's a really good way of getting started. Um, and then I think over time you can kind of invest in, in better lighting. And I think you will see better results with with better lighting but there does come a point of kind of diminishing returns um so i know for example in our shop we we tend to only stock the the mid-range stuff because once you get above that it's really quite specialized and you know lights can go for for thousands of pounds those ikea lights are great i've got a couple which are, are working absolutely fine I don't think they're available in every IKEA or rather in every IKEA in it. I don't think they're available in every IKEA around the world. I think possibly they're not available in North America. Um, so sorry to disappoint you if uh, any listeners are, are there. So let's assume we've set up a terrarium and now 
we need to keep our eyes peeled for things going wrong. What are the main things we need to be watching out for? Yeah, I think the the main thing that tends to go wrong with with terrains is either too much moisture. So particularly on like sealed bottle style terrains, you know, if if you start with too much moisture, then there's nowhere for that moisture to go, so you will just end up with rot. Um I think with with more complex terrariums, things that can go wrong is plants start to grow really fast and you know outcompete each other. So I think one of the the things that will really benefit most terrariums is just regular pruning, just regularly cutting everything back. Because what you'll find is that will help stimulate new growth, but also keep control of the kind of individual species, um, and and really help it uh, settle in and and grow as best as you can. I think. Very occasionally, a little bit of fertilizer, if if it's just a planted only, plant only terrarium, will will really help the the plants to sing because you know in a in a closed environment there's no nowhere for for nutrients to to enter into that system. I think the only thing you have to be wary of with with nutrients in terrarium is that there's also nowhere for it to go, so you have to use it very sparingly because it builds up quite fast. So I tend to use, you know, the kind of slower release fertilizers like your Osmocote pellets and, and things like these, just a little bit into the substrate, um, just just to give the plants something to feed on and grow from, like over time. I know I've been guilty of not reading the application rate on the fertilizer packet. I mean, that is really important, particularly with the terrarium, presumably where there's actually not that much soil inside it. I yeah, it it would not be a, not be a lot at all. I think with fertilizer, I always err on the side of less, less is more initially and then watch the plants. And if the plants start to, you know, start to fade in color or get a little yellow, then you know that maybe, maybe you need to add a little bit of fertilizer extra. I think it's very easy to add more fertilizer. It's very hard to take it away once you've added it. So let's talk about some of the stars of the show. There are some gorgeous begonias and some of those semi-aquatic plants that you were talking about that really are head turners. Can you talk us through some of those? Yeah, for me, the the ones that really capture my interest are, like I said before, the rheophytic species. So a lot of these come from Borneo. Um, you can te- you tend to be able to get them from specialists like us or from uh, specialist aquarium stores. Then you also have um, plants which are relatively new to the hobby in the last couple of years, which are the miniature philodendron species. So anyone who's familiar with you know your large philodendron house plants, you can actually buy uh, really miniature species uh, with you know leaves that get no more than three or four centimeters in size. And I think these are really great for terrarium because one of the difficulties with good terrarium design is is scale. You know, you want smaller species so that it looks like you've got a bigger slice of the rainforest than just, you know, the bottom of one big plant. Um, so any plants that stay really small and compact. I think other plants which are gaining a lot of interest at the moment are, as you say, the, the rare terrarium begonias. Again, most of them are, are from Southeast Asia. There's some really incredible um, ones of those. The the only thing with, with the begonias, they tend to be a little bit more sensitive than some of the other terrarium plants. So often you can have a, a beautifully growing plant and then the next day it's it's melted back to just the stem. 
so it takes a little bit more finesse to, to grow them really well. And then I kind of touched on the, the Margravia species. So there's some really, uh, the common ones like Centenesii and Umbalata, but then there's some incredibly rare ones as well. We, I think we cultivate about 40 species now of, of Margravia. Um, some with kind of colorful leaves, some with almost neon, uh, margins on the leaves, some with serrated leaves, but all of them are, are climbers. Um, some that grow really quite big and some that stay incredibly small. Um, and so I love Margravia as a, as a genus for its kind of diversity. And then the other, the other kind of plants that I personally really like are the miniature ferns. So particularly in South America, there's some really great uh, ferns that are in the microgramma uh, genus with kind of snake, almost like snakeskin texture, real crazy uh, venation. Then there's also some in the Elifoglossum family, which have the most kind of like beautifully ornate uh, fronds that grow no more than maybe four or five centimeters. Uh, and they really are incredible. Um, the only problem with the ferns is they tend to be slow growing and they tend to be hard to source. So, you know, we, we've been trying to cultivate them for, for the last year or so. And even in a year of growing, we maybe end up with three or four plants from, from one plant. So they're nowhere near as prolific as some of the other species. So I think probably over the next couple of years, they'll become more available and more readily available. Um, and yeah, I think the, the one other kind of family of plants, which I'm really interested in at the minute are the Piper family. So the same family that we get uh, black pepper from, there's a lot of really beautiful Piper species that are kind of actually undescribed in science at the minute. So they often go by names like species Indonesia, species Borneo, species Papua, but some that have really beautiful, um, almost black foliage with, uh, with like pink venation. And they, they look incredible offset against some of your kind of more uh, standard green foliage. And I think it's really about mixing and matching and having a few uh, star plants in a terrarium and a few more background texture plants as well. I know that your company Grow Tropicals really majors on sustainability. Can you just talk a little bit about why you decided to put those sustainability goals at the heart of your business? Yeah, I think when... When I started out the business um, just over a year ago, there was there was a real rise in in demand for for these tropical plants, and you know, as as with anything that's that's slow growing, like a lot of these plants, suddenly the demand outstripped the supply, and that led to a kind of increase in poaching in uh, in areas, particularly in places like Indonesia, and. You know, when you've got a crazy demand, reduced supply, the prices was going up and up and up. And then, you know, I, I would never blame the locals, but if they were out of work from the COVID pandemic and, you know, they could go into the jungle behind the house and, and cut out a plant and sell it to, uh, sell it to a Westerner for a few hundred dollars, like we would probably all do it in that situation. So our, we, we kind of made the commitment to, to hopefully work really to increase the supply of some of these rarer plants in the UK. And I think coupled with what was happening at the time with, with Brexit and 
obviously the COVID pandemic was affecting kind of logistics of getting plants in, into the country. It also made a sense from, from a kind of business sense to uh, stabilize our supply of these plants as well. So it was as much a, a business decision as sustainability, but really what we wanted to do was bring in some of these rare plants, uh, cultivate them here and be able to offer them to to customers in the UK. And I think what we also realized was that plants that we were growing in our own conditions were much hardier, much stronger, and ultimately better quality plants than the ones that were just imported and, and sold straight away. I think as that's kind of evolved from kind of the middle of, of last year, we've also started working with nurseries in Asia. So we recently started a project with nurseries in Indonesia where we actually commit to buying plants in, in larger numbers. And what, what that's allowed them to do is to put in the infrastructure to to propagate these plants and employ the local farmers who, or they call them farmers, often locals who were collecting plants from the rainforest, to actually bring them into employment to use their skills to, to propagate and farm these plants, which before were being poached. And also the kind of investment that's been made there has meant that um, they can also invest in things like tissue culture to to produce the plants on on a larger scale. So we're, where we originally started out as um, UK propagation was our idea. It's ended up being more of a hybrid model where we, we are still importing, but we're importing from uh, growers that we're working with to to be more sustainable and then also propagating the, the plants which we can't get a uh, good quality um, supply of from from the tropics bring them to the uk and propagate them to hopefully kind of fulfill demand here as well and then the kind of third angle that we've taken is we started to work with people that we've become friends with over over the last year or two in this space who are you know, serious hobbyists, people who have no intention of, you know, opening a store or becoming a nursery, but working with them to propagate the incredible species they have. So I have a number of friends who they they enjoy propagating the plants they have, they enjoy growing them, they enjoy pollinating begonias and, and chopping up miniature phyllos. Um, and it's really been working with them to also create another uh, area of propagation in the UK so that we can also keep up with demand when we're kind of stretched here because demand is still quite high and we can't physically grow the plants at the pace that we need them. So that's been another great way of kind of reducing import demands as well. That is so fascinating. And are you still looking for new people from the UK to help you with this i'm i know i've got so many listeners to the show who are really keen and propagate some very unusual things that might be of interest to you anybody who is growing particularly we're looking for really special plants you know i think it for us it has to be plants either we don't have or don't have somebody else growing for us or we can't get through the kind of programs that we started working with in asia and i think in the uk there's a lot of hobbyists which have collections which rival botanical gardens so yeah if, if, if you have plants um we would you know these kind of amazing plants that that are pretty special we're always open to you know chatting and discussing with it um there's, there's a few like logistical kind of overheads to to work with when we do this in terms of setting up people for you know plant inspections and things like that which is becoming more 
more necessary as time goes on. But you know, if people are are interested, just yeah, drop drop me an email or reach out on Instagram, and, and we're always happy to you know explore these these options. And just going back to terrarium basics for a moment, is there one pitfall that everybody who builds terrariums falls into that you can help listeners avoid? I would say, and it's it's something I personally still struggle with to this day, is when I'm growing plants, often I grow a lot of plants outside of the terrarium to, to then put into the terrarium. And I grow them in, you know, small plastic storage boxes for, for humidity. And I always end up putting too much moisture in. And what I've learned is over time is that really the plants need very little moisture at the roots as long as there's enough humidity in the air. Uh, and it's really about that kind of almost dry substrate, but really humid air, which is kind of the key to growing these plants really well. And it's only really been working with people who grow these plants way better than I, I could ever dream of, where where I've really started to understand this, this idea of, um, yeah, again, really almost dry substrate. So it should be a little bit moist, but but on the edge of being dry and then really high humidity and you can often achieve that by spraying you know the container that the plants are in rather than directly spraying the plants thanks for joining me today jacob and for giving us all your brilliant terrarium info thanks for having me to Jacob and do check out the show notes for more details about Grow Tropicals and terrariums more generally. Do send me examples of your incredible terrariums. I love to see them and I know that you've got some cool things to show me so do send me a note with some pictures so I can draw. Uh, Legends of the Leaf update. I'm writing as fast as my little fingers can manage and my little eyes can do the research. And uh, it's wonderful to be able to be writing this book. And Helen Entwistle, my illustrator, is hard at work on the illustrations too. If you have already pledged but would like to upgrade your pledge, you can use code UPGRADELEAF15 for a 15% off your upgrade to a higher reward. Uh, maybe you've got no idea what I'm talking about. What on earth is Legends of the Leaf? Well, you may be a new listener and not aware of this, but I am writing a book. It's going to be profiling 25 iconic houseplants and telling their stories and telling you how to make them grow really well in your home. And I'm uncovering loads of cool facts about the plants that I'm covering, including Swiss cheese plant, Venus flytrap, aloe vera, Many of your favourites will be in there. So do check that out. You can visit my website, janeperone.com, and you'll see a link called I'm writing a book and just click on that and you'll get all the information about how to pre-order your copy. And I'm really hoping that I'll get some more pre-orders because once I get to 115% of my target for crowdfunding, that unlocks a new reward. And it's this is a really exciting reward. It's a 25 pack of postcards consisting of each of Helen's illustrations. This is the this is the reward that I am so excited about because I really want these postcards. I love postcards and they're going to look awesome. You're going to be able to 
frame them or give them away to people or use them as cards, they're very exciting. So if I get to 115% and I'm at 107% at the moment, that will unlock that stretch goal. So please do support the book if you can. And thanks to everyone who's already done so. I've been doing some wonderful houseplant consultations with some of you on Zoom, checking out your houseplants and answering questions. And basically everybody's got spider mites on their Maranta group plants. It's <laughs> the summary so far. I've got loads of those coming up. Um, that reward level is now closed because I've had such a good response Oh, it's just started re raining very heavily here. I don't know if you can hear that in the background, but the rain is pouring down, which is good because my water butts were getting empty. And as you know, I love some rainwater for my houseplants. Anyway, where was I? Yes. So please do pledge if you can. Loads of great rewards still there. And if you pledge and I manage to get to 115%, that will unlock the postcards 125% and there'll be a private author update video and if I get to 150% this is really exciting there'll be a bonus pdf of an extra chapter not included in the book so there's amazing rewards out there please do support me if you can if you can't support me I totally understand and you will be able to get the book in all good bookshops once it comes out but yeah how nice to have your name in the back of it that would be pretty cool right and Patreon subscribers, keep your eyes peeled this week coming because I'm going to be putting out not one but two Extra Leaf episodes, one of which will be with today's guest, Jacob James. So if you are a subscriber at the Legend or Superfan level, then those extra bonus episodes will be coming in the next few days. And that's one of the great things about being a Patreon subscriber. You get extra stuff, which you pay for. So that's fantastic. And these people help to keep the show going. If you want to find out more, check out the show notes at janeperone.com, where there is full information on how to become a monthly Patreon subscriber or make a one-off donation. If you don't fancy that kind a commitment i'm cool with that you can just give a one-off donation via co-fi.com or paypal question of the week is upon us and it comes from stacy who wants to know if anyone anywhere in the world is working on breeding non-toxic aroids because i think stacy has some pets and is concerned that they might be affected by nibbling all those beautiful aroids. Uh, it's a really interesting topic because, of course, many aroids are well-loved food staples around the world. So we're thinking of things like yams and dashines and taro, which is from Colocasia escalenta. In fact, the oldest cultivated crop in the whole wide world. So some aroids produce things that we can eat but we have to remember always with aroids that they contain chemical components that can very much disagree with us and indeed our pets so aroids have got various things in them that are going to disagree with you there are various things and i don't have the time or indeed expertise to go into the full chemistry of the aroids. But what I would say is raphides are the things that you'll hear mentioned when we're talking about aroid toxicity. And these are little needle-like structures which hold calcium oxalate. And if you consume the raphides, then you're going to get 
an unpleasant feeling in your mouth. It's probably going to feel like burning and the throat's going to swell. And it's not good for your kidneys either. And as you may remember from way back in the Swiss cheese plant episode, if you eat the unripe fruit of the Swiss cheese plant, Monstera deliciosa, known as Ceraman, before it's properly ripe, then it's those raphides that are going to give you that incredible acrid taste and cause your mouth and lips to swell. So there's clearly an issue. I would be fascinated to know if Stacey's right and there is somebody somewhere who is trying to breed an aroid that is non-toxic. I have not heard anything of that kind and I would imagine it would be difficult because it is one of the central parts of the aroid family's characteristics that it has these raphides um, in it. Toxicity between different aroids varies a lot though so I wonder if there might be some species which have very low toxicity, which would work. And of course, really, this is only a concern if your animals are munching on plants uh, or, you know, you've got children who who might be putting leaves in their mouth um, and therefore it is a live issue for you. Why do our eyes do this? Well, it's obviously a strategy that they're using to stop things eating them in the wild. They do not want to be eaten by passing bugs, mammals, whatever. So they make themselves unpalatable and that's how... They do it by having this acrid taste, which presumably would put most people off at the first bite. If you want to delve more into this world of aroids and toxicity, Denny Bound's excellent book on aroids is worth looking at. Unfortunately, it's very hard to get hold of and very expensive. Denny is writing a new edition of this book, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to. But if you can get hold of a copy, it's got loads of great information about various aroids and their toxicity. I think the other thing to say is maybe look for plants that are similar looking but non-toxic rather than trying to, it's probably a much quicker way of dealing with it than uh, trying to breed a non-toxic aroid. I'm thinking of maybe things like the banana which you can grow indoors. It's usually Musa acuminata, the dwarf cavendish is popular because it's obviously dwarf. So Those are worth thinking about because they have that jungly feel, but they are, as far as I know, not toxic to any pets. And also many of the palm family, like the Arica palm, Dipsis lutescens, and the Kentia palm, Howia forsteriana, are non-toxic to pets, as far as I know. So those are worth considering. Yeah, it's a workaround that might mean that you can't have a load of aroids if you've got nibblers in the house, but you can have these plants that look equally jungly and wonderful and of course if you are somebody studying and working on the aroids in terms of their toxicity I'd love to hear from you perhaps there's a project that I know nothing about do shoot me a line and tell me all about it at on the ledge podcast at gmail.com which is also where you can send me your questions for the show That's it for this week's show. I will be back next Friday. Until then, my plant friends, have a great week. Bye. The music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops. The Road We Used to Travel When We Were Young by Komiku and Time to Move and Motivate by The Insider. 
The ad music was by the Heftone Banjo Orchestra with the tracks Dill Pickles and Whistling Rufus. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details.